0: Okay. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me as ever on Colin, which you know is the hottest app in town. Everyone is in total agreement on that, particularly since the Android app became available. Um, but that's not the reason why we're here to sing the praises of Colin. Actually, it is um, tangentially, because Colin provides an opportunity to have discussions um, prompted by conflicts or a disputation elsewhere on social media, but in a more kind of reasonable, sensible, long form uh, format. And uh, Adam here is, uh, I'll have him just briefly introduce himself, but you know, as um, often is the case, he had a, let's say a criticism of me, maybe a <laughs> slightly, uh, I don't know, um, Kurt one last night and i tried to you know respond we can get into the sort of context of what that the nature of that dispute was but the, the point is it seemed to me to be a reasonable prompt for a more wide-ranging discussion with somebody who maybe is not of firm alignment with me particularly on the issue of uh ukraine and the u.s uh, policy role uh, thereof so um uh, adam would you mind just uh, briefly introducing yourself and describing your uh publication
1: Certainly, yeah. I'm uh, the editor in chief and co-founder of Liberal Currents, um, which is essentially a place to espouse the different traditional lines of, of of thought in liberalism, but also to rethink it for you know contemporary application. Um, yeah, so that's that's what we're all about. Um, yeah, so yeah as, and as I, to I, our... I remember
0: actually um, – I, I was from somewhat familiar with the publication prior to our uh, exchange. I do remember it launching, I believe, in 2017 as sort of a partial response to Trump and thinking that there like was a need for a different sort of mode of inquiry into the nature and role mm-hmm. and of liberalism. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean essentially we, we have people that we know that fall – on the very left liberal end, we have people that we know that are quite categorical libertarians, um, and essentially we felt, well, there's actually there's a lot of common ground in terms of basic value assumptions across these, even when they fall on the complete opposite ends of of the partisan politics of the day. And there's a lot of value in bringing people that share those kind of values into the into a single place to have their disagreements.
0: Yeah, you know, this is not uh, directly related to the discussion we're about to have on uh, Ukraine uh, and U.S. policy in relation to the proxy war, or maybe it's not a proxy war, according to you, so we can we hash that out. But I am a contributing editor of this new publication that was just launched uh, last week called uh, Compact Magazine and um, had my first uh, article for them, which I wrote a while ago, but you know, they, it took a while to actually get it. Up since they were putting the launch together for some time. Um, Pope went up today, and it was, it's an ass- assessment on my part of the uh, philanthropic largesse of uh, one Pierre Omidyar, who some of you may know as the founder of eBay, but who also has entered into the media sphere uh, with his subsidization of First Look Media, uh, of which uh, the Intercept is a part. Um, I didn't get into that, that facet of it because I was sort of more intrigued by his spending as it relates to this uh, so-called uh, democracy fund. Um, you know, it's just kind of the shorthand of his sort of more politically oriented philanthropic giving, but it's supposed to be nonpartisan. And I gave some examples of what this funding is culminated in. Um, so anyway, people just could be interested uh, to look at that, but I, I also raise it because it seems to me to that the uh, kind of core editorial sort philosophy and premise behind the, the founding of this new publication is in tension with the, um, the, the founding philosophy of liberal currents. Um, I, for my part, joined, uh, agreed to serve as a... Um, contributing editor because I was asked nicely and it seemed like there were a bunch of interesting people affiliated with the publication, more so than any kind of fully fleshed out um, ideological imperative. Uh, but anyway, um it's, it's funny. I mean Adam, I'm sure again, you've been following yeah
1: but again it's it isn't really or the topic that we were going to discuss, but it, it is funny because uh, you know, we just had our five five year anniversary of launch and in it I pointed out that in the wake of all the things that happened in 2016, not just Trump, um, there were a few publications like ours that were looking to see how the landscape was changing and, and reassess. But one of the things that I pointed out was, uh, you know, several of the, the founders of Compact um, were sort of trying to stake out a more firmly non-liberal position. Right. That's what's one of the one one of the groups that has seen an opportunity in in the ways the ideologies have been shifting. Um, And I think the very next day after I published that essay about our five-year anniversary, compact was announced.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, maybe there could be some interesting uh, forums to be had where there's, you know, interchange between compact and liberal currents. Um, You know, I don't, maybe uh, people regard me as some kind of zealously anti-liberal agitator or something, but I've never really conceived of myself that way, Um, although it is the case, I guess, that a lot of the uh, seeming contradictions and uh, inconsistencies in more kind of popular liberalism, so I guess liberalism more generally associated with the Democratic Party and the sort of media monoculture, um, those do uh, frequently rub me the wrong way, and uh, so that (laughs) maybe is uh, sometimes a focus of my journalism or analytical, uh, I don't know, uh, interrogations. Um, But with that, I guess we can get more into the um, topic at hand. And uh, so I don't want to overly trivialize it by, you know, litigating a Twitter exchange because that's always kind of dumb. But, you know, it it was sparked by a Twitter exchange. And I actually give Adam credit because, as I've actually discussed before on this very (laughs) call it show, I think. I think I'm fairly open and even eager to uh, engage in a substantive way with critics, and so I offer to do so pretty often. And um, when my critics are journalists or people in the media sphere, uh, my offer is often, <laughs> doesn't tend to be taken up very very, very much, um, because you know it's easier, I guess, to snipe and troll. Which you know it's fine. I get the impulse, and I can, I can handle it. But I, I am heartened uh, on the somewhat uh, rare occasions when uh, the critic does agree to <coughs> transition to a more kind of, I guess you might say, substantive or less fraught uh, format. So, uh, Adam, I, I hereby uh, commend you for that. Um, but you know, the so our sort of interaction was prompted by. Um, <laughs> my uh, tweet of mine where I just sort of posted a a screenshot of the latest fundraising solicitation that I got from the ACLU. Now, I've been a member of the... uh, I'm not a dues-paying member currently of the ACLU, but the ACLU is the first political organization that I ever joined. So when I was 18, first... um, you know, really looking to. Uh, well, I guess you know, technically in the college Democrats as well. But this, this ACLU, uh, apart from that, was the first organization I ever joined. Uh, and my joining of the ACLU was largely impelled by my um, antipathy and frustration with uh, the. Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration's war on terror policies, uh, particularly as they relate to civil liberties, whether that, you know, uh, whether, you're, whether you're talking about the Patriot Act, whether you're talking about mass surveillance, whether you're talking about uh, various Deportations of the Iraq War, of the Afghanistan War, um, CIA black sites, uh, extraordinary rendition, uh, torture, of Guantanamo Bay—that whole kind of suite of issues associated with the Bush era. That's that's what um, motivated me to join the ACLU because they were at the forefront of trying to impose some measure of a counterweight to the incumbent Bush administration and to um, demand, you know, that. The secrecy, uh, imposed by the Bush administration on a number of these projects, you know, such as, you know, warrantless wiretapping and, uh, definitely the CIA extraordinary rendition sites. Uh, the CIA, the ICLU was again, like at the tip of the spear and trying to, um, redress some of that. So that was the reason, more or less, why, you know, I joined. And so now, you know, A number of years later, so I guess, yeah, I'm talking about 2006, something like that. Um, So fast fast forward to 2022, and the uh, U.S. is once again engaged in what I would characterize as a military intervention. I'm not sure if Adam accepts that characterization, but I think if the U.S. is proudly and loudly and actively fomenting a proxy war against Russia, in Ukraine, which is in the midst of a hot war, uh, that to me is a military intervention and actually, I personally have observed in the flesh, the sort of, uh, at least a sliver of the mechanics of that military operation uh, as I spent uh, several weeks in Poland, um, where the proxy war is basically being uh, headquartered out of. Um, So uh, maybe we can get into whether that's a definition or a characterization that you uh, accept, but the, I guess the, the broader point is, you know, I, I'm just sort of uh, aimlessly scrolling my email inbox yesterday, and uh, once again, the ACLU, as they are wont to do, they're sending a fundraising solicitation. It's so nothing new, okay? Uh, I don't begrudge them that, um, but you know, I can't help but notice that, you know, in the midst of this fairly, I would say, ominous period, where the president, Joe Biden, says that you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, the uh, heat of the moment, it's plausible that he could potentially launch World War III, and he, so he's not going to do it. Um, but, you know, if he were to do troops on the, you know, deploy troops on the ground to Ukraine, or if he were to impose a no-fly zone or something to that effect, it would be World War III. So we're actually having kind of live discussions about the prospect of World War III in a way that we just haven't prior to uh, February of this year. Um, so there's a lot. I think there's a lot of um, tension around that, and a lot of reason that the ACOU might want to be engaged in sort of uh, an adversarial role to the U.S. government, um, which is reserving the right to start World War III should it want to. Um, not to mention that you know this is a this is outright warfare. I mean, the U.S. is boastfully proclaiming its intention to just in perpetuity send giant shipments of weaponry into Ukraine for the foreseeable future, using operational mechanisms that aren't 100% clear, notwithstanding my attempt to ferret out some of the details. But you have these supply lines coming in and out of uh, Ukraine from Poland, and uh, even just a few days ago, Biden sort of, you know... It's difficult to keep track of what he's even talking about half the time more and more. Um, but he did seem to allude on Monday to this idea that the U.S. is actively training Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military in Poland. And that was supposedly the explanation given by Biden for why on um, this past Friday he... Seem to suggest during his visit to Poland that U.S. troops could soon be deployed to Poland. So, you know, it's just one thing after another with Biden where he has to issue these kind of elaborate post-hoc justifications for his various uh, statements, which carry a huge amount of weight right now given the circumstances. Um, So I I guess that's all to say that there are plenty avenues of inquiry that to to me, at least in my mind, that the ACLU might be pursuing right now. You know, I have reported on how, for example at these newly erected U.S. military installations in Poland. They're basically the um, locus points of this uh, proxy war. Um, the Pentagon is, is enforcing a policy of what it calls, not me, I'm not calling it, this is what they're calling it, um, a media blackout. So not even the most friendly or even sycophantic uh, journalists are being granted access to view any of the goings-on at these uh, newly created military installations. Um, there's a lot of uh, ambiguity around what U.S. policy is. I think the fair inference is that it's geared toward regime change, given Biden explicitly stating as such during his speech in Warsaw on on Saturday. Um, so I, in sum, and I'll wrap up here and let you Respond at them. But in some, you know, my sort of, maybe this was a slightly flippant observation, nonetheless it was reflective of the genuine sentiment I have, is that when I read a fundraising solicitation from the ACLU, and it's, you know, all trans issues, um, in keeping with their repeated focus on trans issues, seemingly to the exclusion of other issues that were previously, I would have thought, in their orbit, um, It it does strike me as a fairly uh, mm, pessimistic uh, indication about the current organizational composition of the ACLU that it wouldn't even occur to them to uh, have any role whatsoever in this current uh, U.S. proxy war. And they have been involved, as I mentioned before, in many aspects of U.S. foreign policy over the course of the organization's history, whether it's Vietnam, um, Iran-Contra. Uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, against CIA black sites, drone strikes. Um, I even pulled up a, an article that was posted on the ACLU website from just a couple years ago, where they basically uh, condemn the illegality of the U.S. war on ISIS because, you know, as they rightly note, it wasn't congressionally authorized um, by uh, yet waged by both uh, by Trump, uh, by Obama, and then Trump. Um, so. Uh, I was sort of flummoxed to see that so many people, uh, including Adam in his own way, seemed to deny that it was even f- plausible for the U.S. that the ACLU could have a position on any aspect of what's going on right now in terms of the U.S. war effort in Ukraine, as though it's not something that the ACLU would do to have an opinion or to litigate on some aspect of U.S. foreign policy and kind of connect it to some sort of civil liberties angle, even though, you know, that's the very reason why I joined the organization in the first place uh, all those years ago under the Bush administration. It seems like there are plenty of... Uh, transparency-minded initiatives that the ACAU might be pursuing right now should it be disposed to, but instead it, as usual, was kind of uh, engrossed in the kind of standard um, transition stuff, which I'm not even really commenting on the merits of right now. All I'm just do- doing is pointing out this seeming uh, incongruity in uh, the uh, professed priorities, and uh, you know, ex- uh, lamenting what that seems to, to indicate about the uh, current nature of the organization versus the SELU that at least I have a memory of from years ago when, like I said, it was the first or one of the first organizations that I ever joined as a function of my own kind of political expression. Uh, anyway, so that's my uh, sort of synthesis of the uh, debate. I don't know if you want to uh, jump in.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'll just say, uh, as, I, as I said before we agreed to do this talk, that I'm, very much a believer in, if you shoot from the hip in public, then you should take ownership of that. And I think that I definitely shot from the hip. I, you know, to me on its face, it seemed silly to, the the, the spirit of, of what I said uh, was that it was silly to find it strange that the ACLU would be focusing on these domestic issues that are going on in red states right now. Um, as opposed to being involved in a, you know, the the escalating war between Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, then then went further. People said, you know, well, would you expect, you know, how how can Burger King continue to sell burgers when when there's a war going on in Ukraine? Essentially, like treating treating it as though the ACLU having some involvement in foreign policy was was as ridiculous as uh, you know just expecting anyone with with a different focus than foreign policy to to pivot to it. Um, so I think I mean you've pretty pretty clearly shown like the ACLU either comments on or takes legal action on matters in the general sphere of of, of uh, foreign policy. Um, though the legal action typically focuses, as, as far as I could tell, typically focuses on civil liberties violations on or by American actors um, abroad. But you you know you you pointed out the ACLU specifically commented on the law that even allows the the sale of arms to somewhere like ukraine um prior to the invasion uh so you know i i i I shot from the hip i i overstated my case so i don't i don't even really want to split hairs on whether something the acl done aclu has done in the past uh is more or less it makes your tweet more or less accurate or you know what have you? I think it's perfectly fair to debate whether or not the ACLU ought to be conducting information filings now. Um, I sort of question whether there's anything they could do, given how long the the levers that they have take have would take to work. Um, you know, I question whether they would ha- could possibly have any material impact on the course of a war that's changing very quickly. Um, but that I think you know it's it's a reasonable thing to debate. Um, to me, I think uh, the biggest thing was that it seemed, from from the way you said what you said, that the bevy of anti-trans laws that have been introduced in the red states, but especially the Texas case, which isn't even a law, it's an executive action, um, is, a, is a laughable thing to focus on, given the impending World War III, as you put it. Um, and I think I also take issues somewhat, um, though not as strongly, with uh, with the idea that the ACLU sh- should chiefly, uh, or or even in, the, in cases like these, be primarily focusing on on foreign policy. But I think that is a more debatable proposition. Um, I just think, in general, there is a bad trend, and and perhaps this is this even you know goes back to an organization like the ACLU getting more involved in the, the foreign foreign policy sphere in the wake of the global war on terror, maybe not, but there's a much more recent trend than that where you see like housing advocacy groups making statements about Israel and Palestine and things like that. Just things that are very, very plainly unrelated, you know, to, to their core. Planned
0: Parenthood making a statement about Israel.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So I guess, my two things to put to you are uh, Are you willing to clarify that whether you feel that the ACLs use work in, in Texas and for, in similar cases is merited and good and that's the kind of thing they should be doing um, on the one hand? Um, and then on the other, uh, just to ask what you think about this matter of advoca- advocacy group overreach and sort of the value of them sticking to their core?
0: Um, so I'll put that to you. Yeah, um, you know, two good questions. Um, number one. My commentary, which I guess was sort of constrained by the necessary uh, brevity of of Twitter, um, wasn't intended to be a wholesale dismissal of the utility of anything that the ACLU might be doing with respect to these new uh, laws or measures or regulations being implemented in largely Republican states around the issues of trans rights or LGBT rights. Um, I was simply noting the... Uh, the phenomenon that a ACLU, the ACLU sort of public facing position right now, or it's, it's what it's choosing to emphasize is no different today in March of 2022 than it was in March of 2021. Because I remember making this exact same point more or less um, around a year ago, when there was no hot war uh, in Europe and when there, when there was no uh, proxy war that the US was leading the charge to facilitate, even about a year ago, it was uh, the, the, the public facing communications of ACLU was increasingly dominated by trans issues, uh, seemingly to the exclusion of other issues that would have in the past been more squarely within the remit of the organization. So, you know, there were huge controversies raging around, for example, um, speech on the Internet, free speech on the Internet. You had this uh, purge of uh, Twitter um, uh, at post-January 6th where Donald Trump's ban- uh, the account was banned famously. Um, you had the kind of government government officials um, maneuvering to extirpate Parler, this kind of right-wing-leaning social media app, and um, the ACLU, uh, by and large, uh, was nowhere to be found on these kind of what I thought to be critical issues of speech, or speech rights on the internet, um, and the First Amendment. And, you know, Glenn Greenwald wrote extensively about this as well. Um, And it did seem to me an indication that something about the kind of organizational philosophy about the ACLU had shifted, where it is more just sort of this all-purpose liberal advocacy group, um, and therefore has the same sort of boutique sensibilities of urbane liberals that something like the Center for American Progress would have, or even like the uh, your uh, typical fundraising dinner for the Democratic Party would have. Um, and that to me was a, a, a shame because, again, the reason why I joined ECOU in the first place was because there were sort of more narrowly uh, focused civil liberties matters that were uh, that it was in a unique position to, um, to advocate for. Um, and... Uh, I, t- it does seem to me that there are huge issues of potential censorship that are operative right now where, you know, you have social media companies algorithmically uh, manipulating their systems to uh, sh- to basically um, shroud or remove uh, so-called Russian media outlets. Um, it's, 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 it's more pronounced definitely in, in Europe. I mean, I was just in poll, uh, poll in the European Union where... Um, You know, if you go to the channel on your TV dial where this uh, Russian RT uh, outfit used to air, uh, it's just a black screen now and you can't access uh, like RT on your phone anymore on YouTube and whatnot. So it's not as extreme in the U.S. Uh, But, you know, there are calls for uh, censorship. There are definite calls, you know, in Congress and elsewhere for uh, a much harsher crackdown on so-called Russian disinformation or Putin apologetics or what have you, and a lot of these have pretty, I think, foreboding implications for for speech. And you know, the ACLU just not is it, just not uh, institutionally really um, animated by these concepts as much as uh, they once might have been because they're more uh, enamored of this kind of standard fair liberal culture war issues, which trans, you know, for better or worse, uh, is at the forefront of, of right now and. Um, so, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree that, you know, uh, especially post 2016, when the ACLU had a giant influx of, of funding, uh, financial contributions, because people were wanting them to be a bulwark against Trump. Uh, they did seem to transition more, uh, kind of fulsomely, into a sort of all-purpose liberal advocacy group where they would be taking positions on like healthcare reform and stuff, which didn't really have any immediately cognizable relation to civil liberties. Um, so, if that's the case, I mean, if it's, if it's expanded, it's Scope so much then to have people you know confronting me on the, these uh, kind of technical arguments about how you know it, it the u s military prohibiting any media access to these bases and Poland is not an actual civil liberty issue because of you know this that or uh, this, this or that arcane philosophical argument about appeals to natural law or whatever um, it, it seems like a bit ridiculous because the ACU is often. Uh, demonstrated that it's willing to stray from what the uh, ordinary, uh, Kind of a expanse of civil liberties issues might be, but that, that they, and even that said it seems like there are some obvious like just straightforward and even classic civil liberties implications to uh, this uh, proxy warfare in ukraine um, and as you mentioned and as I sh- showed to you, there was a letter that they organized just last year where they uh, criticized these, this arms control act, which is kind of the governing uh, regulatory statute uh, that uh, in theory. Um, manages these flows of weaponry from U.S. Uh, arms manufacturers into, uh, Ukraine to be used in hot war to, you know, kill Russians. Um, and so, um, again, yeah, this, uh, the sort of technical criticism that No, it's just, and I know you sort of concede at this point, Um, but I guess it's worth underscoring that there seems to be a a bevy of potential uh, uh, avenues for inquiry that the ACLU could carry out with regard to this proxy warfare campaign. But I don't think they're—I think they're not doing it because, in part, it's now just this all-purpose liberal advocacy group, and you know, standing with Ukraine, quote unquote, is an article of faith amongst. Uh, conventional, uh, within conventional liberalism right now. Even if standing with Ukraine is not the most (laughs) specific thing, it's just a kind of emoting that they're doing. And so for the ACLU to um, at least appear to be antagonistic toward that broader endeavor, even if all they're doing is just Uh, advocating greater government transparency or preservation of civil liberties in the face of this uh, growing militarism and kind of war fever, um, then, yeah, I think they're going to be institutionally disinclined to go there and rather just focus on their wheelhouse, which now seems to be trans issues, and I think that's somewhat dispiriting. Uh,
1: You still there, Adam? Sorry. Um, So uh, just talking about the ACLU, how it's changed, how it hasn't, uh, I think part of the problem is a heavy focus on their public communications. And I'm not saying, again, I just made the point myself about the sort of problematic public communications outside of core areas of organizations. So I'm not saying that's not fair game. But Sophia Hotel, who has written for us about the anti-trans laws um, separately, um, not not for us, she had performed an analysis of uh, the actual tax documents that the ACLU submits in order to get a sense of what their actual activities are um, outside of their communications. And it's really not that... Like, if you look at the past, you know, four or five years, it's, it's not... It, that maybe the tone of the communications has has shifted drastically, but the actual work that's being done is fairly classic a c l u stuff um the bread and butter has not really changed um so just putting that out there often I think you know obviously communications matters, and I think uh focusing on on trans has shown what to to my mind is a positive shift in the nature of uh of donors right right now for organizations like that um and you know, I mean, per, per, I personally, a quick point with,
0: uh, on, on that before you yes. for you proceed to explain something that's directly relevant, and actually, we're approaching the one. I just looked this up because I, I recall tweeting about it, and it was almost a year ago to the day. This is March thirty first, two thousand twenty. you just out of interest, because I said I do, you know, I follow the ACLU. I'm on all their mailing lists. I'm, I'm a, a consumer of their public communications, right? So I get a flavor of what it is that they're emphasizing on any given day or week or month. And just out of curiosity on, uh, March 31st of last year, 2021, I did, a, um, you know, a, I tabulated the, the subjects of their most recent 100 tweets. And of course, you know, but they're tweeting is not the be all end all. And I, I, accept that, you know, if you dig into the tax doctors, make, make a different picture. I'm, I'm curious to look at the, um, you know, look at in more detail what you're referencing from your uh, your colleague there. So maybe you could send that to me over over DM or something. But um, for whatever it's worth, on March 31st, here were the last 100 ACLU tweets by topic, March 31st of last year. Okay, so immigration slash Muslim ban, eight tweets. Police reform slash racial justice, nine tweets. Voting rights, seven tweets. Economic inequality, three tweets. Prison issues, one tweet. Surveillance, two tweets. Abortion, three tweets. Uh, D.C. statehood, two tweets, Ace, uh, fundraising, one tweet, trans issues, 63 tweets, um, free speech, one tweet, two process, zero tweets. So, I mean, I think that is a reflection of something that has shifted in their organizational priorities, even if one grants that the, the public communications is not the entirety of what the... Organization is doing uh, so. I'm just curious, like what What do you think? Uh, and you are kind of uh, beginning to address this thing, but what do you think accounts for um, this slant in their public communications? Again, conceding that the public communications is not everything. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think the e- so, for example, the email that you highlight um, probably is is more indicative of who is donating right now, which again I take as a good sign because I think. That is what is going on in the red states right now is a pretty serious matter. Um, and I understand that, like, the potential of nuclear war, it's very hard to hold up anything next to that and keep perspective. But I also think that over the last hundred years, and especially after the World War II or even during, um, the high stakes of conflicts like that is often used to sidebar important conversations or, or important efforts uh, about improving domestic politics. Um, so, you know, keep not not exactly trivializing the stakes of what's going on in Ukraine, but I, I, I actually think it's a good thing that there's a lot of people focused on, I mean, the, the Texas law in particular, which is the one that, that the issue has actually filed a, a lawsuit against. Um, uh, the idea of using, Child services in that way with, without first of all passing a new law even uh, but simply unilaterally beginning those investigations uh that's pretty troubling to me from that's like a very classic civil liberties uh, attack um you know,
0: I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excusing that or defending it. I'm, I'm not even fully, I'm not even uh, uh, familiar enough with the full details of those statutes to comment intelligently, like cause I've been pretty preoccupied with this um, Ukraine stuff recently. Um, I, I guess I was still, I was just pointing out the Extremely glaring disparity. So I'm not, I wasn't arguing that for some, for some reason domestic issues ought to be sidebarred. but I think there's a there's a balance that in theory could be struck where you're not just totally ignoring this pretty significant foreign policy issue that could uh, you know pretty conceivably result in World War III. Um, uh, and uh, you know, just ignoring that and having close to one hundred percent or a huge portion proportion of your your focus on these sort of more conventional and longstanding um, domestic social issues, it seemed like to me that that disparity was worth calling into question. And, well, and and it's one thing I think when it's
1: the donor driven stuff like that email that that you highlighted originally. Um, A question that I always have about the actual social media engagement is it seems like fairly young, inexperienced communications professionals are given a relatively free hand, um, uh, you know, for different organizations. And in my view, that hasn't necessarily been, the greatest, even just for the causes that they advocate, if if you follow me, um, so I, I think those two might be separate phenomenon, um, maybe not entirely separate, but
0: yeah, yeah, maybe so. Um, well, I mean, I think that's actually a fairly good point of, I don't know if you would call it agreement or not, but um, you know, so ACLU aside, I guess we we also had a bit of a disputation uh, over whether proxy war is the correct term or a defensible term to uh, characterize this current U.S. policy in Ukraine as. Um, I
1: I think we can resolve this pretty quickly. I mean, maybe not, because perhaps we disagree enough. Um, But for me, I think, listen, a lot of it just comes down to conventions that have been adopted for... Specifically, political reasons rather than descriptive, right? um And I think what I let off with was that before seventy-five years ago, or, or even more recent, um just just doing economic sanctions by itself would have considered been considered at least the entry into an act of war, if not an act of war, right? Just stuff like before, especially before we had nuclear annihilation on the table, and we wanted ways to for russia or or the united states to resist one another's influence without entering a full nuclear escalation um a lot of the things we've done so far would just be straightforward we wouldn't even call them proxy wars they're just wars Uh, just you know essentially um and the hardening of these conventions around what's what mostly does have to do with this careful tightrope walking of We don't want to publicly say that there's a conflict between the United States and Russia or acknowledge that in any way, especially by officials of either of those countries, because neither one of them really wants an open uh, conflict and neither does anyone else. I mean, enthusiasm for supporting Ukraine aside, um, I think, you know, there's a there's a poll because you've emphasized a lot how Ukrainians say that they want a no fly zone without necessarily perhaps knowing what that would entail. but that's true of Americans as well, um, even though our own officials are saying, no, no no fly zone. Um, and, you know, there's polls that going around saying that, like, 73% of Americans support imposing a no-fly zone. But, you know, the, the obvious question is, if the first question had been, given that imposing a no-fly zone would mean entering direct warfare with Russia... Do you support this? And I, I suspect that the answer would be different, right? Um,
0: but well, yeah, but, I think, so think there have been polls where they'd add that follow-up kind of uh, qualifier, and the support does go down somewhat. But even even then, it seems even like then, I, yeah, there's, even pretty, then. there's pretty staunch uh, support on yeah, a uh, bipartisan basis. Yeah.
1: which is which is terrifying, um, and and definitely to be pushed back on and avoided. I, I think probably where our disagreement uh, happens is not around the term proxy. War, which I mean, look, we're we're providing them with tons of of weapons and resources. I don't know if we're training their their troops or not, but we're certainly providing all kinds of support. And then we're you know we're, we hit also we Russia with providing these.
0: intelligence, providing real time intelligence for right. the Ukrainian military to conduct combat operations. So that's another factor.
1: Right, right. another so inf- information and resources we're providing it all. Um, you know, I think calling it a proxy war calling it just a war of a, of a certain kind i mean it's it's clear that we're involved in this this conflict i think where we would disagree, would disagree would not be over that which which to me is just empirically obvious and uh and not even particularly something that's being hidden um perhaps we would disagree about what what got us to where we are or or maybe more the the motives of some of the actors in the sense that I don't think this is a war that Ukraine wanted one. And I don't think this is a war that the Biden administration wanted either. Perhaps there's people in the American foreign policy world and apparatus and, and, you know, military apparatus who, who did, I mean, it's so large that that you could probably make that case for almost about any position. But I think by and large, the Biden administration was hoping to apply pressure to avoid an invasion that didn't happen. When it did happen, their own intelligence uh, led us to believe that Putin's reading of the situation, that he would win quickly, was more or less correct. So we we were not planning for a long, protracted fight. It's just that once one came, we, just, we came in to support it. Um, that would be more how I would characterize the events. I don't know if you would agree with that.
0: Well, I mean, just a quick continuation of the semantic point, um, because while you seem to uh, uh, contend or you you concede that it's just trivially obvious that the U.S. is a participant in the warfare on some level, so whether it's a proxy war or not is kind of almost beside the point. I mean, that might be um, empirically indisputable to you but it actually is a fairly controversial statement to make and i know this firsthand because last week i appeared on tucker carlson's show which i know for a lot of people is like the most mortal sin that any human can ever do and they should spend the rest of their lives repenting uh, lest they be damned to eternal hellfire but nonetheless i do go on the show occasionally when asked and on my most recent appearance i used the Characterization of the U.S. policy vis-a-vis Ukraine as a proxy war, and um, for saying that, I actually got attacked by uh, Media Matters, this you know liberal uh, watchdog uh, group that really holds power to account by you know watching uh, cable news all day, um, and they said they uh, condemned me for repeating conservative and or Russian talking points merely by using the phrase. Proxy war, Um, and I would note that Leon Panetta, just a few days earlier, Leon Panetta being the CIA director and uh, Secretary of Defense under Obama, he used the same terminology. And uh, I haven't seen media matters uh, getting on his case, but that's sort of a uh, beside the point. It's all to say that it's actually not considered just empirically straightforward and obvious and unassailable to a lot of people which is why you know and and even when i use the phrase on uh, just on twitter which I, you know it's not the best barometer necessarily but I, I get a lot of angry um pushback just to the mere the mere terminology um, I, I which is sort of ironic to me anyway because i actually think the proxy warfare is one of the le- it was one of the softer phrases that could be applied to the us War effort right now. I, I think it could easily be characterized as a combatant. I mean, if if, if Russia, I mean, I know this analogy kind of uh, is played out, and uh, people don't like John Nearsheimer because he evokes it too often. And maybe we can get to this one of the articles on liberal currents that you referred to me to about the Ukraine situation more specifically. But you know, what, what, one thing that realists will often say, and even like Papi Cannon says this, but you know, some leftists will say the same thing, and rightly so, which is that you know, if there happened to, and this is a, of course a, just a Sort of far fetched, counter, uh, uh, counterfactual, but it's just meant to isolate a certain principle, right? I mean, if Russia was flooding massive amounts of weaponry day after day into Mexico, for the and Mexico was at war, and the U.S. was you know at war in Mexico, and the, the purpose of the Russia doing this was to facilitate Mexico's ability to kill American soldiers, and. Russia was proudly boasting of doing this right on the border of the U.S. Um, I think proxy war is one of the milder ways in which that uh, Russian policy would be characterized by U.S. officials, right? Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you're right that the, the, the Biden administration boasts about this constantly. You have uh, American officials uh, in both parties who are t- extremely adamant in their uh, full-throated support of this policy. So why aren't we allowed to call it what it is, which is a proxy war? I'm not saying I'm not, literally not allowed. I'm saying, like, why is that s- s- somehow a controversial uh, contention? Um, I'm not saying you're contesting it, uh, but, you know, I do note that I have gotten into this sort of semantic dispute on a, a number of occasions
1: may may I comment on on this this yeah. particular aspect so I mean I think the, and you know i don't i don't want to be unkind it 's not like we haven 't liberal Currents hasn 't benefited from this kind of controversy in the past either uh, but they're, they're, the entire media ecosystem uh, and this includes you know extending it into to Twitter for the professional personalities on there, um, which I would, would include yourself um generates just a ton of heat and energy um, by fighting over points of rhetoric is how I would put it. Or if not points of rhetoric, then very high level abstractions um, depending on, on what we're talking about. So like in the free speech debates, for example, there's some there, there, right? There's, I mean, everyone agrees that platforms are huge and, and have some influence on who sees what, like, you know, we can debate the extent and whatever and what it means, but there's that. On the other hand, uh, you know everyone agrees that heavy-handed government censorship is bad. But what you end up get debating is not the particulars of either. You end up with people say, you know, even like the New York Times recent editorial um, piece. What I found objectionable about it wasn't some specific which I, thing, um,
0: which I which I uh, gracefully ignored because I was well, yeah. living but, my I mean, truth as, by not getting I, preoccupied with that crap,
1: as as one should. But my my pr- chief complaint about that was not any particular point. So much as that it kept things at a very high level. It repeated uh, talking points that always that have come up repeatedly over the past five years without alteration and prompted the same response talking points that have been repeated over the past five years for every iteration of this debate. Right. And then, and so what, where this relates to the the proxy war thing is uh, people will just point to something and say, they, you, you know, you, you'll deploy a label like proxy war. Then someone says, well, proxy war is just a r- Russian propaganda term or something. Right. And, and it becomes a fight about that. um, or whether whether or not you're in bed with Russia or whatever, but as you say, like if 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 uh, you know in re- in rhetoric they talk about not just the the content of the message, but the, the but the messenger. Um, if a different messenger is saying it, then it's then it's perceived differently, um, and it's all about sorting into different groups that you know can can again just generate a lot of attention because that's what keeps the the media wheel going around, um, and it doesn't really get into the heart of the matter, which for me is uh, we're in a very precarious situation in in Ukraine. Um, I think it's defensible, like on, on, in principle terms, I mean, like in, in terms of, uh, supporting Ukraine the way that we have, I think it's an enormous gamble. Um, I don't think anyone should underestimate how big of a gamble it is. Um, I don't think anyone should underestimate how, uh, painful and widespread, uh, the effects of the sanctions will be felt not just by russia but especially by by people who live in russia or russians you know the russian diaspora um who have banks and things in in russia um or family members um none of this should be underestimated none of this should be seen as a model to be done on a regular basis if anything i i one of the things that i hope can come out of this uh, and when I say hope, I don't mean that I'm optimistic that it will. Um, but one thing I would like to see out of it is the acknowledgement of just how severe sanctions are and how exceptional their use should be. Because um, we've done, you know, we, right now I'm editing a piece by um, a, a regular contributor of ours who writes about sanctions quite a lot. Um, and the point that he hammers on, Trent, Trent Nelson, the, 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 the point that he hammers on is that we have levied similar sanctions, not not quite to this degree, Though, though, you know, approaching it to countries that have not taken actions nearly this extreme. Um, so if if there is a defensible case to be made that what we're doing in this situation is what we should do given this situation, we need to evaluate what we're doing elsewhere accordingly, um, which which we have not done and which, which needs to be done. Um, and, th- and those are the conversations that I would much prefer to be having yeah. than over whether the specific phrase, proxy war, is, you know, Russian disinformation or something. It, it's just, it, it, I think it's ridiculous to spend a lot of time on that or, 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 you know, emotional energy. I think the person making that criticism, I would much rather them talk about, what I just talked about which is we're currently giving w- weapons to a country in open hostilities with, with the largest nuclear power in the world um, and uh, we're currently levying sanctions that are setting back the Russian economy to you know 30, 30 years ago or something um, if they if they hold if um, and you know what, what are the implications of that what does that mean what where, where do we go from here like can, can we all agree that what we really want is de-escalation, uh, the end of hostilities, and a path for removing those sanctions or at least loosening them?
0: Well, uh, okay. So, I mean, I ultimately agree that I would rather have the more substantive debate that you've sketched out the parameters of. Um, so we could delve, delve into that. Um, uh, at least, you know, I don't know how much time you have left, but let's just get into at least a, a bit of it. Um, uh, number one, I'm sort of curious if you are yourself asserting that the current U.S. policy, such as it is, is defensible. Like, are you are you defending it affirmatively, or are you just saying that there is a defensible case to be made for it? And number two, um, would you agree with me? And this is a, con- uh, a, a contention that I would make uh, enthusiastically, which is that there has been an extreme paucity of debate. Around whether the policy is defensible, it's almost as if there's no debate at all. There's just sort of this coalescence of entrenched consensus around th- this policy, um, and to the extent that there's any debate, it's a, it's Republicans accusing Biden of not being aggressive enough. And this is you know just last night I was uh, sort of <laughs> watching Ted Cruz and he's saying, "Oh, Biden's weak, in, weak, and an appeaser." And this is a couple of days after Biden goes to. Poland and uh, essentially calls for regime change in Russia. I mean, what more do you want, Ted? Should, I mean, should we launch uh, airstrikes on Moscow? I mean, it's uh, it's it's crazy. So, like the 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 contours of the debate are um, so far removed from what I. Th- I think that they ought to be, which is just a, a critical evaluation of the premises undergirding the policy, whether it be on sanctions. I mean, is it actually defensible to inflict? And, and the Secretary of State, Blinken, admitted this directly, and I've talked about it before on call. I mean, they now are unabashed in affirming that the purpose of the sanctions is not merely to punish Putin or his uh, enablers in the Russian government is to inflict suffering on Russian civilians such that down the line, magically, this will, um, I guess, result in the overthrow of of the, or in the dissolution of the Russian government. Um, that seems like pretty um, crazy thinking to me, uh, but that's, that, that's the purpose. And and they're explicit in admitting that the purpose of the sanctions that was expi- uh, inflicted suffering on Russian civilians. Um, So, you know, is it defensible to crash the 11th largest economy in the world Uh, because the leadership has taken a foreign policy action that we object to? Um, Is it defensible to be engaging in this huge proxy warfare that involves the largest weapons funneling operation in Europe since World War II? Um, Is it uh, defensible to uh, be putting weapons in the hands of actors who we don't have a great sense of and who the U.S. Congress at one point prohibited the dis- distribution of arms to, meaning the Azov Battalion, which I don't want to get into down, down too far to that rabbit hole, but the, the, at one point the, the Congress prohibited the provision of arms to that battalion um, because they were regarded as such extremists uh, ideologically as being, you know, neo-Nazis or whatever, and, you know, that seems to have fallen by the wayside. Um, you know, there, are so, there are many d- dimensions to this policy that ought to be more thoroughly debated, but really aren't in mainstream uh, precincts, partly because people would rather quibble over you know, my definition of proxy war, I guess. You know, I'm not trying to center, quote-unquote, myself too much. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, ways out or ways to finesse this, this issue that preclude the kind of thoroughgoing debate that I think is, is warranted. So I'm just kind of curious um, what you think about that.
1: Yeah I mean I'll I'll just I mean there's a few things I'm a little biased by my own surroundings of course and and the, my surroundings are chiefly the one that we've sought to make with liberal currents which is as a small independent publication mostly about the community more so than just the the publication itself we have we have spaces where we can have discussions um and the 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 stuff the contours that I've that I laid out as you, as you call them are more or less what we focused on discussing, uh, and this week alone, we've we've published two pieces, and as I mentioned, I have a third um, uh, by people who are n- do not have a large appetite for either warfare or sanctions. Um, t- talking about this, uh, the situation. So, in, in terms of the scope of the debate, it's difficult for me to say the lay of the land because you know I've, I've built my own little social network um and i've seen lots of debate within it um and so per, this is perhaps you know if i can make a criticism <laughs> at, at this point since we've we've ag- agreed to agree or agree to disagree on a few things um i, I think a lot of the way that, that you do engage the public yourself is to to uh insert yourself into those areas where there's more heat you know or you know more heat than light more more uh, more noise than information. Um, and I think that the, the tweet that got our conversation going is precisely an ex- example of that because it wouldn't have been hard to say that it's frustrating to that, that the ACLU has completely abandoned, you know, the sorts of efforts that they pursued so zealously in the Bush days or, you know, so something to that effect. But, but by using the fundraising uh, email about trans issues specifically, um, with the ambiguity of not not specifically commenting on on the content or or its merit, um, you know the reason that blew up is that everyone assumed that you you they they looked at the, your opponents the people who were already critical of you looked at that and assumed from the context that you thought that the trans issues were trivial um, and not just trivial in comparison to the war but just trivial period, um, especially since as you say just a, a year ago you you were. Calling it out as well, I'm not saying that's a fair characterization. Uh, what I'm saying is that the w- the way that you've you've chosen to present yourself and to enter into some of these debates um, brings you into those areas where there's the most sort of con- polarized conformism um, and debate about just very trivial just very trivial aspects of very important topics. Um, so that, that is my criticism I, I put to you. Since since I've said something pretty, uh, I think. Severe. I'll give you the chance to respond.
0: <laughs> well, um, look, I mean, Twitter is a medium that, I guess, uh, incentivizes certain kinds of snippy or uh, provocative ways of phrasing things and making points, so I don't deny that. And, I, you know, it's not necessarily my conscious motivation when I compose uh, a tweet such as that um but you know at least at the at the very least it's uh, initiated some conversation and debate hence this discussion that we're having right now where i can kind of more uh extensively lay out my uh views which you know i hope i i have done um so you know i, I don't know how much uh value there is really to to litigating the uh, the nature of my uh tweets uh syntax or whatever um i'll just kind of sure. let
1: that, I mean, let if, that point if, stand um, if if you'll if if i can yeah go a little deeper than if you wouldn't mind i'm not not criticizing you but just just something that i've learned as a general you know gen, general matter um so you know 26 twitter for me used to be just a fun place to go debate people about philosophy or whatever topic i was interested in and you know talk about whatever Entertainment thing that I that I liked, right? Twenty four circa twenty fourteen, twenty thirteen, even before, uh, met a lot of nice people there, made it, made a lot of friends. Twenty sixteen comes around, sort of it became what it's become. Reevaluating what it was I even wanted from the medium, um, and you know we launched liberal Currents, and essentially for me it's walking a fine line of the, it's a public square where you can meet people that you otherwise would not have. Many of them are very interesting very smart, uh, you know, would push back against your own bad tendencies. Uh, so there's that. Um, on the other hand, the, the modes of engagement that get the most attention are the modes like the ones that I engaged in when I dunked on your tweet, right? Which was not a, a particularly nuanced tweet on my own part. Um, and that's the way to get attention. That's the way that we've gotten attention for liberal currents. at, at sometimes, you know, I don't deny that. There's that aspect. And one of the ways that I try and counterbalance engaging in, in that is to do precisely what we're doing here, which is, if someone, if if I, if I overreach, if I oversimplify, if someone calls me on it and wants to have a longer engagement, I will take ownership of the the lack of nuance in a public way. So here I am, but also I, you know, I, I will I will commit to having conversations that perhaps I wouldn't have. Um, so you know, I look. At the end of the day, you probably know far more about the ins and outs of the ACLU and about you know American foreign policy now or 10 years ago than I do, and I, I'll admit as much. Um, and normally what that would mean for me is that I leave those conversations to other people to engage in more depth, um, but I was the one who fired the first shot in your direction, so and so I'm here to take ownership of that and to have that conversation.
0: <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, cheers for that. I don't know. Uh, take ownership and uh, it's sort of a over dramatic way of putting it, I guess. But nonetheless, as I said from the outset, I appreciate your willingness to engage. And I have a similar philosophy to, to you on this stuff, although maybe I haven't articulated it in quite that way, which is that, you know, if I'm willing to uh, harshly criticize someone in public, whether it's Twitter or wherever else, then that ought, that it must, almost in every case, is in tandem with a willingness on my part to have a more, you know, fulsome uh, discussion on a different medium. And uh, unfortunately, as I also mentioned, uh, the offer is not often taken up um, when I uh, repeatedly make it. So that's why I, I commend you as a as a noble outlier um i guess just one, one one more point that's sort of more substantive on the ukraine stuff and then we can get into a couple uh callers if you have the time is that you know you, you sent me an article that uh appeared on liberal currents i think just this week right by matthew downhower who um on his actual Twitter bio identifies himself as like a professional John Mearsheimer rebutter, um, which is interesting. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's uh, a new development. <laughs> so it says, uh, interna- his, his, he says uh, he identifies himself as international relations slash John, John Mearsheimer being wrong. Um, <laughs> so there you have it anyway. But, um, I don't know if you agree in totality with the argument set forth here, but there, there was one aspect of it that, that stuck out to me. And people, if they're interested in reading it, can uh, just look up a liberal alternative to realist errors on Ukraine by Matthew Downhour. Downhower, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, so he uh, toward the end he goes through his criticisms of Mearsheimer's kind of quote-unquote realist diagnosis of the uh, origins of this war. And um, that's interesting enough, but the, the, what interested me more actually was towards the end, where he provides like a liberal his suggestions for a liberal alternative, or um, for like a liberal prognosis going forward as to how to address the situation. And by the way, actually, now that I think about it, you mentioned before that we all should unite around the desirability of de-escalation and achieving some kind of peaceable resolution. But there's not it's not clear to me at all that that's actually Something that unites uh, at least the American political media class. I don't seem interested in the that's, that's a very fair point. Yeah, I mean, again, point. Joe Biden did something pretty radical in demanding the ouster of basically for a regime change in Russia publicly. Um, and you know, the, even just yesterday, when you had these so-called peace talks in Turkey, and the reaction on the part of U.S. officials, meaning the Defense Department, and the State Department, are so the two key um, actors here uh, in the federal government. they through cold water on the the talks right, and what they're not and i also don 't really buy i 'm sorry the um, sincerity of people who insist that they 're so uh, committed to a uh, peace while at this, on the on the at the same time they're you know huge supporters of dumping stinger missiles and grenade launchers into an, an active war zone i don 't know there seems like a bit of a tension there that isn 't really um, interrogated enough but Setting that aside, um, you know one of the uh, in terms of the quote liberal path forward that's suggested by this uh, author, he says, you know, quote for one thing, full throated support of the Zelensky government in Ukraine. Um, he says for liberalism to triumph in Eastern Europe, elected moderate leaders like Zelensky to show that they can hold their country together and usher in prosperity and stability. The U.S. and EU need to make sure that happens. Um, so. Uh, I'm not sure what that means exactly. It sounds like just continue the current policy. Um, but he does say that the addition of a credible, quote, the addition of a credible third-party security guarantees of Ukraine's sovereignty would make a future direct conflict unlikely. Now, he he, he qualifies that by saying actual membership in nato or the u is not eu is not necessary for ukraine but he then says that we should have some other kind of vague quote-unquote security guarantee of ukrainian sovereignty i don't know how a security a quote-unquote security guarantee of ukrainian sovereignty would be offered if not by the military might of the u.s which would just put us back to square one, right? Because that would be the U.S. asserting its prerogatives militarily slash diplomatically in Ukraine, which, you know, at least taking, uh, if, if you listen to what Putin and the and other Russian government officials have said, is a huge part of what spurred this war. I'm not saying that they, everything they say should be taken at face value. I'm just saying this is their publicly stated rationale or a huge part of it for why they launched the invasion in, uh, in the first place. So in terms of like this, Enlightened liberal path forward, and I'm being a little bit pejorative there. But I'm not sure what this person is actually proposing that is at all different from current U.S. policy and um, how it could be conducive to some uh, some kind of deescalation. So I'm not sure if you. I'm assuming you edited this piece. I'm not sure if you agree with it, the whole thing. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm wondering what you make of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen. The, the, for me, it's a little hard to disentangle what's in the piece specifically with conversations that I've had with him. Uh, or that he was involved in um off off the top of my head um, but you know I think there's different kinds of there are different kinds of security guarantees, and I think this well guarantee is probably a strong word right um essentially there's there's different kinds of assurances um or or forms of support and i think before this this invasion occurred um, it, there was there was the hope that with the fact that we had simply provided training and materials uh ahead of time and threatened further sanctions and such and shown that you know we had this level of support for Ukraine would be enough to deter Russia. Obviously that was wrong. Um but I also don't think that Russia expected the cost of this war to be what it is. I think that if we can get to a peaceful solution, and that is a big F, um, but I, you know that is what I want more than anything. Um that there's not going to be a great appetite on the part of of Russia to roll the dice there again when he, when they've seen that even with a much smaller force uh you know ukraine can make the the, the price of entry not worth it so so there's there's that aspect um such that you, we could you know we could provide economic support we and the in Europe can provide a post-war Ukraine with economic support without it unnecessarily becoming a member of the EU. Um, and with, uh, much like other non-NATO nations, we can, we can provide forms of, of support for bolstering their military preparedness um, that are not a full-throated guarantee that we are going to send in troops but on that's ground exactly what the ground.
0: But that's exactly what the U.S. has been doing with Ukraine up to this point. I mean, they, uh, they right, elevated, but, for example, Ukraine but, to this uh, partner status where they didn't have full membership, obviously, but there were these initiatives to cultivate so-called interoperability between NATO and the U.S. military and, and Ukraine. So, I mean, that's already been okay. happening. So I guess I'm not sure what is being proposed here other than what the policy has already been, which doesn't well, seem to I have mean, like resulted in a good outcome. I,
1: th- I think we can all agree that the choices made over the last 20 years on the part of the U.S. Uh, and- I know I keep using the phrase, I think we can all agree. What I mean is I think we can both agree. I'm not going to speak for anyone but not in this uh, conversation. Uh, that the, the policy choices of the past 20 years on the part of the U.S. in particular, and, and also of Europe, um, you know, completely failed to, to deter Russia to the extent that they could have. Um, I also would say that the proceedings where the Bush administration pushed for georgia and ukraine to be given nato membership even when they didn't have the support to actually make it happen and therefore just resulted in a sort of public declaration of intent without any actual concrete institutional you know or or, or relationship change um was probably the worst of both possible worlds in terms of give, giving russia the sense that actually it was on the horizon and if they wanted to stop if they wanted to stop a situation where Uh, They were directly invading a NATO country. Then they should invade sooner rather than later. You know, I think there's many bad choices that were made over the past 20 years, and I agree. I think Matthew 100% agrees with that as well. Um, But
0: but but, but beyond that,
1: no, it's fine. Beyond that, I think the key difference is that whatever we do moving forward, it's going to be different anyway because of the fact of the war and what happened. Uh, The the estimation of what it would mean to go into Ukraine before the war. Uh, was not just different from what it would be after a war in a potential post-war settlement, where either Russia withdraws or there's some kind of settlement in the in the eastern regions, you know, with, with you know, something around that. Um, it's it's not just that the estimation is going to be different; it's going to be almost the opposite. Instead of thinking, well, they're going to fall very easily if we send in over a hundred thousand troops on the ground, um, they're going to think, well, if we unless we send in we, we a we can't send in a bunch of recent conscripts and expect to you know basically it's it the the price for entry is extremely high um and once that's the case um the options for what the u s or Europe can do um, to to deter a, f- a future invasion increase i think once it's credible that that Ukraine can accomplish quite a lot on its own especially if we've been providing them with uh, preparation in advance. Um, the the situation changes, but this I mean, look, no 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 one can actually make. This is the problem with especially foreign policy. No one no one knows, and and Putin is an actor that we can't. Putin is a, specifically is an actor uh, that I don't pretend I can predict future decisions from. I can't even predict what what he's going to do in the course of this war. Never mind what he would do in a post war various. Post more more align- alignments, and then there's the question of he's not going to live forever. What he's in his 70s, even if even if there isn't some kind of in- com- incredibly ill-conceived attempt at regime change on the part of, of uh, the Western powers, um, he's not going to live forever. There's going to be a replacement. I, I have no idea who that would be, or what, or how they would act compared to Putin. Right, so I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say either Matthew or I have the the perfect approach um, that will guarantee success.
0: Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, you know, just to quickly wrap up, you know, when I hear this term credibility used in a foreign policy context, I a shiver runs down my spine because, I mean, it, it, it seems like it, this is a sort of fake currency that international relations so-called experts and think tank impresarios uh, have invented to sort of justify their insane behavior because it's designed to enhance enhance so-called credibility, which is just this. Meaningless abstraction that they have conjured up, Um, and so I don't know what it means for Ukraine to be "quote credible." Um, It seems like actually enhancing the credibility of Ukraine has, like I said, been the expressly stated policy of the U.S. for quite some time. I mean, people have have rightly uh, gone back to this communique from 2008 that the Bush administration uh, orchestrated, where they uh, affirmed that Georgia and Ukraine would at one uh, someday enter. Uh, NATO. Um, but even just last year, uh, Biden and Zelensky signed this so called uh, strategic defense framework, which enshrined and uh, codified that. Ukraine was going to be progressing toward quote unquote NATO interoperability um, and then in November they, uh, they there was another formal agreement a charter a strategic partnership where the u s um uh, declared support for quote unquote ukraine's aspirations to join NATO so i mean i, I don't know what sort of credibility it's, it's it's assumed could be conferred to Ukraine if that doesn't run through NATO or other some other um, Sort of appendage of U.S. military hegemony, but th- that seems like what would need to be the case if you're talking about a security guarantee, which was the term used in that um, article. And that uh, again, that just puts us back where we started, at least as so far as um, I can tell. Uh, but that's a whole uh, lot, lot larger discussion. And I don't know if it's okay with you, and you know, if, if you have time constraints, feel free to, to bow out. But I figure we can take a couple of uh, of callers, and I'll urge them to be brief if possible. Yep, I've got 10 minutes. Okay, uh, let's go to Eric. Eric, you're up. Uh, Eric, I can't hear you at the moment, so I'm not sure what the situation is, but if you want to rejoin the queue, do so. Okay, uh, Greg, you're up.
3: hello hi um, very interesting conversation you've been having I appreciate you know two different people coming together and uh, working out their differences that doesn't often happen um, I guess I just wanted to say there's a lot of things I guess I wanted to say but uh, in a response to what Adam had just said I I don't I don't think the united states policy in the last and this might just be a a disagreement that we have but i don't think we've done anything to really um dissuade russia we've done we've done more to provoke russia into the situation we are in now and in regards to i mean the people around around biden right now it really reminds me of the way obama looked in hindsight after The situation that happened in Libya, where he had all of these people around him who were part of his uh, national security um, council or whatever you want to call them, like uh, Hillary Clinton and I can't remember all the other people, but you know, and the whole just mess that we created in Libya. And say again, Michael.
0: Oh, like Susan, Susan Susan Rice, Rice. Samantha Power, these people. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I'm sure Jake Sullivan was there in some aspect. <laughs> but I just think that he right now he what what's happening in Ukraine is what happened in Libya where we had Newland going in and it seemed like doing her own kind of thing and I don't I don't know if Obama ultimately really wanted that because he was the one who was drawing the red line, but you know, you had you have her husband Kagan who was the architect of the uh Project for a new American century along with Bill Crystal and which was part of the architecture of what justified the Iraq war. And I just see that kind of mindset and ideology, <laughs> ideology being perpetrated over and over again. And at this point, they folded the liberals into their, into their coalition and kind of ostracized what used to be part of their coalition, which were the right wingers and the near and the, um, the, the what would you call them? Uh, conservatives, but the, um, uh, I can't think of the name right now. But I was just, I just think. Uh, yeah, so I, I
0: think. It, yeah. uh, sorry to sorry to cut you off. I do want to no, go make ahead. A, go sort ahead. Of an abbreviated session here with the callers just for in the interest of uh, not keeping Adam forever. But uh, no, I, on the, I, uh, I think you're you're right, uh, definitely about. You know once you get uh, once the u s gets involved in a proxy war like this and you know setting aside the potential semantic um, uh, disputes of that uh, characterization but once once that happens, you open a can of worms where you have all different competing interests within the uh, the federal government getting involved to one degree or another with some maybe slightly divergent agendas like the state department and the department of defense often don't have the same approach to issues sometimes one or the other is more aggressive or more willing to entertain confrontation so on and so forth and you kind of it's open season for like kind of freelance operators within the government or even outside the government to exert uh influence so yeah i mean it's just kind of um that that that's a that's a danger, and also on the, quickly on the point of, you know, you say that you know, uh, Russia has been provoked by the U.S. You know, Adam was speaking before he used this uh, invoked this concept of. U.S. policy having failed to deter Russia, where well, yeah, alter- yeah. alternate alternative framing was that U.S. policy provoked Russia. Right? I mean, yeah, that yes, kind of gives some more you. agency to to the U.S. Right? Um, and I think, I, yeah, so that. So that, that's um, it, kind of a, a rhetorical tack that I kind of. Uh, <laughs> maybe a uh, question when, when I hear it said but can I,
3: but, can I say one last yeah, thing yeah, just yeah. just it's I don't think we're fighting a proxy war what we're fighting I mean you could say it's a proxy war but we're fighting a fifth generation war and you could define it as a global war of ideas and narratives the style of war is primarily fought in the information space however the actions undertaken in the information space are not intended to be a final goal but rather a way to affect the physical kinetic battle space cyber warfare is a critical part of fifth generation warfare and these tactics do not super precede the overall function of fifth-generation warfare. Rather, actions in the cyber-battle space are a tool to both supplement traditional forms of military warfare while simultaneously serving as a tool that certain actors can utilize to further their wars of ideas. The ambiguous... Very uh, okay. are- right,
0: thank, thank you. I, I got it. I got it. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. the point. Thanks for your point. Uh, Adam, do you have any uh, any uh, remarks quickly on that?
1: Uh, I don't know what he was reading yeah. from, but I'll use the opportunity to to plug uh, my father, Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public, which talks
0: about some oh, of the I, I didn't know that was your father. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, ha- I have that book on my shelf, but I haven't actually uh, read it yet. So now I have an extra. <laughs> What's
3: and it said, about, I'm, Adam? I have no.
0: Uh,
1: well, my, it's, I'm, I have a totally unbiased recommendation on it. No, it's a, uh, it's, about so his focus was the uh, the tw- the mass protests in 2011, which includes the Arab Spring, and um, and Occupy and the Indignados in Spain, and essentially talking about how changes in the media environment brought these about and changed the nature of these social movements, not necessarily in a good way. Um, you know, they're very, they're very structureless they're very goal, goalless, um, and very, just sort of like directed against things. Um, but, but anyway, that, that book is very much about the, you know, when, when he's, when he's called on to comment on current events, it's usually because they're looking at, for example, how the Ukrainian social media posts have influenced the, the information war side of things.
3: Yeah. Oh, okay. Very cool. Right. Well, thank yeah. you, and uh, let's hope food pri- or food prices and a food shortage doesn't spark a similar thing. But thank you, Adam and Michael.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks, Greg. Uh, now let's go to Date, and uh, like I said, please, uh, if you can, keep it brief. I know that's sort of this a this difficult will, rule so this will by by have to that be the last one
1: for me. Yeah. Okay.
4: Sure. I, I was just going to read an excerpt from my recent. No, nah, just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had a question for you guys. Um, uh, just a very brief comment, one-sentence comment. I think that perhaps the proxy war uh, part of this war was before the Russian invasion when the U.S. was sending arms to the eastern regions. Uh, my question for you guys is about the 2014 uh, Euro Maidan, um events that occurred in Ukraine. I've heard a number of people in uh, left-journalist spaces refer to 2014 as a coup, and I was going to ask you guys, in your opinion of the history, do you see 2014 Euromaidan as a coup? And as an extension to that question, how do you feel the distinction between coup and revolution is applied in general? Um, thanks for taking my question. And Adam, just want to commend you for coming on and having this conversation.
0: Yeah, Adam, what's your uh, what's your thought on that, Curious.
1: I'd, I'd be more interested in what you think, honestly. I mean, I for, oh, okay. to, to, um, to my knowledge, I would say no not especially since in the interim we've had you know several free and fair elections with fairly clear results um in in Ukraine i mean obviously i think the russia going into crimea and things like that was not not legitimate but yeah i don't
0: know well i mean i'm not sure that something necessarily could uh, fail to meet the criteria for a coup just because there are subsequently elections that are deemed adequately democratic. I mean, I think a coup is a reasonable term for it. Um, I kind of like the word "putsch" um, for the events of 2014, the uh, Maidan. Uh, I, I think maybe "coup" isn't quite the right term because it implies that there was it was purely a matter of kind of. Um,
1: Transfer of power, right? brute force, I mean, that's, that's a, that yeah. brute
0: force, like within maybe factions of the government that kind of carried it out, and there was some measure of a street uh, movement and popular discontent, but it was sort of egged on and aided by a variety of factors, one of which, uh, outside influences, including the U.S. So I think you know coup is reasonable enough of a of a descriptor. I, I would say you know it was a it it was a an ouster, of, an extra legal ouster let's say um that's probably uh enough and i think that's even if that's as far as you want I mean, to go in your description I mean, it, it like kind my, of, so yeah
1: i you know i mentioned my dad he's he's a uh, cuban um so I mean, we've got a lot of family in like colombian places like that and you know where regime stability it varies between very unstable and then sort of like terrifyingly stable in the case of cuba um now um and I think it's it's murky because there there can be a popular component, and um, it could be a genuinely popular movement. Then do you call it a coup, or is it more like an Arab Spring situation where there was an ouster? But then of course in in, the, in Egypt in the Arab Spring, you just end up in a military dictatorship. So that's why I mean I don't again I think there's a there's an association with the word coup, which is just okay. Some people grab power, and that was that. The reason that I mentioned the free and fair elections after the fact. Is purely to point out that, like you know, I I don't feel qualified to litigate the particulars of that event, especially like right now on the spot of three minutes. Um, but I don't think there's any question that what occurred afterwards was, you know, democracy. If if an imperfect one, it was a you Venus. Know.
4: What about the American Revolution? Would you, could you yeah. see that as a coup?
1: <laughs> Can you hear me? Sorry.
0: Um, let's not, let's not, let's not relitigate the uh, American revolution. (laughs) Um, Adam, thank you for, uh, taking a fair amount of time here to, uh, to chat. And, um, you know, if you want to leave the room, feel free and I'll uh, power through the rest of the the callers here myself, but I, I I appreciate you, uh, you doing this. Yep.
1: Thank you very
0: much. All right. Bye. Um, okay. Uh, Quickly here, I guess, we'll go to uh, Chad. Can you hear me? Yep, can hear you.
2: Awesome. Uh, well, I guess uh, the other guy left. but um, Well, cool. other guys, a... if you're still around, you can come back. No, no, no. I mean, uh, like your other guest. Back. Oh, my
0: other, yeah. I saw a caller. Actually yeah, no, I just wanted to say it.
2: it's, uh, yeah. it's cool to see uh, a difference of opinions coming together to chat it out rather than yeah. a bunch of people that agree with each other chatting it out. I could just talk to myself if no want to. Yeah, but uh, do you hear voices inside your head? Point. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was just gonna <laughs> mention, uh, I can't really, but who made the point about uh, you know, sending stingers and all that, but also wanting peace? It's kind of hard to, yeah, that put was all mean. that together. Um, I do want peace, but I also want to supply Ukraine, and my rationale for that would be if we just abandon Ukraine, then Russia can like, take it over. What's stopping them from doing Finland next, Sweden next, next you know, um, and, you know, I think it'd be more peaceful to just stop rushing the tracks right here. Uh, keep in mind them that their army's a paper tiger, basically, and, uh. Don't say that about NATO because that ain't going to go well. Professional armies with no and better gear and supplies.
0: Yeah, right. you know, there's a common theory in circulation now, and you just articulated a version of. It, but I think you know it's uh, this domino theory. Really, I mean, it's to the, circa 2022, where you know if one if Ukraine falls, and so will uh, Moldova, and then into the Baltics, and maybe even Poland, and who knows where else. You even have Tom Cotton threatening that uh, or prophesying that. Uh, Putin may eventually make his way to the continental United States, um, which seems a bit crazy. Uh, but that's Tom Cotton for you, anyway. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm I mean, I, 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 you know, know, I know, I know what you're getting at. I just think that there's kind of like a um, this blase in which people who, on the one hand, think that they're champions of peace and want you know neg- to get a negotiated settlement and whatnot, um, just couple that. Almost uh, without a second thought, uh, with uh, this idea that you know <laughs> flooding this enormous amount of missiles and grenade launchers into a war zone is like a peaceful thing. I mean, whatever that is, it's not, it ain't peaceful. I mean, it's uh, no, maybe it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a also... pro-war measure, which you can say is a just war, but uh, I don't know. Peace, calling it peaceful seems like a bit uh, euphemistic to me.
2: I would not call it peaceful. Like in a, I don't know how to say it. Like, obviously, you're right. Like, war is not peaceful. But to make peace, sometimes you got to crack a few eggs, right?
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks, Lennon. Um, or who was that Paul I don't know. Who cares? Uh, all right. Thanks, Chad. Uh, all right. Last caller, Eric. Uh, go ahead. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. I couldn't okay, before, but now wow. I can.
5: Because um, I, I might have to put my headphones in if it's too echoey. Let me know. So, Michael. That's no, fine. Um, are you? Do you have a hard out, or I just wanted to... No, no hard out. Well, if we could let our hair down what a little What are you, a TV little, producer?
0: Hard out. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I know. I'm such a, I, I'm such a pro. I'm such a yeah. business. You'll never you'll work on this one again. I don't know. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? So, just my hair down a little. I don't know if you saw any of my comments in the comment stream, but... I found that guy to be one of the most disingenuous, bland, blasé people. And I guess
0: my question (laughs) Uh for you is, Michael, what? I'm glad he left before before you made this comment.
5: Well, you know what? That technical difficulty was not, you know, because I would have been the first caller, and I'm sorry. I would have tried to be very polite, but firm. But but I want to ask, why are you so nice? What how what, where, how have you learned throughout all this time to talk to so many people? Because listen, some people are saying like, "Well, this is a nice, productive discussion," and to my mind, it wasn't productive. That guy—it was only productive in revealing <laughs> how vacuous that guy was.
0: <laughs> well, like that's—I con- well, mean, if that, if that, that thats from, but that's, productive. that's better, That is productive right? in a way, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm not—I'm not—I'm not, okay. I'm not, I'm not necessarily endorsing that your right. your characterization, but if well, that I'm is your be- interpretation of the discussion, that would be a productive outcome.
5: Okay. Okay. Let
0: me, all right. Let me get away from that then because, um, I mean, how, why am I so nice? Is that what you're asking? Well, I mean, what? I, cause it's especially because I receive so much quote unquote incoming. I tr- strive to not overly personalize from my own perspective, substantive disputes. Like I don't have any, and when I'm in a Twitter exchange, that's slightly contentious with this fella. Right. It's not a matter of me hating him personally. I don't know him personally, nor do I have any reason to kind of opine on his personal characteristics. I'm to the best of my ability respond to the substance of the critique that he's setting forth as best as I can ascertain it. So I want to, you know, try to model the ability to, um, disassociate personal hangups and personal animosities with the actual substance of the issues. And because they're, they're important issues and I think are worth uh, discussing in a in a uh, substantive way. Um, so yeah. that, that that's my basic philosophy. I don't know how much more complicated it is than that, or if it's like a function of some deep-seated psychological tendency or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a, I, and I also, I, ha, I also have a genuine like a appreciation and, Uh, interest in in talking to people who have different views than i do Uh, i think it's actually inherently sort of constructive so i I don't know if that answers your question it does
5: it really does and i appreciate that because i feel like i'm similar to you you know um uh uh, i see myself in you you know the good things right (laughs) but like also, I struggle. You see
0: yourself in the. Well, that's a little disturbing.
5: I know it's. Well, you know what? My real name is Michael, so I just. It's.
0: I can't help it. So, is <laughs> no. my pseudonym.
5: No, but I, I see. I see. I, can you I get a?
0: Can you get, a can you get like an oil painting uh, of me that you could hang up?
5: <laughs> well, you have to pose for it. So <laughs> okay. See. I mean, I have a couch. If you want to, <laughs> don't. Wanna, don't uh, say couch. But anyway. Yeah, let's
0: uh, let's let's rule that out. Actually. <laughs> All right. I'll stay, I'll stay at your hotel. No. Okay. <laughs> no,
5: no, no. My my point is, is that um, I, if, when I personally would want to deal with someone like that is there's a part of me that thinks, well, you know what? It kind of would be helpful if I could explain to him just how terrible he is. But then, um, you know, it's who am I to do that? I mean, listen, if I'm going to criticize him here, you know, with you and he's gone now, but if you want to come back and talk to me, I, I really would talk to him, I guess. But um, for my mind, it's a matter of listen, guy. I mean. You are asking Michael Tracy and then criticizing him for his specific stuff. Then every time he comes back at you, you just say, well, I'm not an expert. I don't feel, you know. And then, okay, here's the other big thing to explain is that um, whenever somebody criticizes you or somebody else for being trivial, while you're always focusing on trivial things, that person is admitting that they are doing something even more trivial, which is criticizing someone else for being trivial, when, you know, how about, does it occur to people like that? Like, well, why don't you and why don't you and Michael team up and like you know, instead of focus on the important things to agree on, you know, because I mean, if you press him on it, like he just kind of vaguely casually just says, well, yeah, I mean, all the new, all the CIA propaganda about Russia's true, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you know, um, anyway, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I guess I take the the thrust of your point. You know, I I don't want to accuse the guy of being trivial. He did agree sort of on the spot to have to transition a, um, you know, a Twitter spat into a, you know, hour and a half roughly conversation. So, you know, you got to, you got to commend him for that on some level, even if you might quibble with how he treated certain points that I raised. And, you know, and I I think he, he also was willing to make certain concessions. Like actually the, The the crux of the initial dispute really was my claim that it was ridiculous to suggest that it wouldn't be within the organizational remit of the ACLU to get involved in anything related to foreign policy, which was essentially what he was saying initially in his tweet, and he basically conceded, the point on that. So, you know, that's a, that suggests at least some degree of humility on his part. So I, I got to I appreciate that. But, um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, cause, but I, I cause I was essentially, uh, more or less accusing the ACLU of being trivial given this giant disparity in their seeming priorities in the midst of a potential World War II scenario. they uh, uh, you know, balls to the wall on the trans issues as ever. Um, yeah, I, mean, so I don't know. Does that make me trivial by pointing out their p- potential triviality? I don't know.
5: Actually, I think it's really important, though, because, um, okay, I'm going to lay my cards on the table here if I could talk a little bit about um, the ACLU and, and the trans issues and uh, other issues. But, you know, I, I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm born 1990. I grew up campaigning for gay marriage, and you know, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was a little gay boy. Like, um, you know, I, was, I got called a Tom girl. Um, or like, and I remember my, or very early memory. my mom was watching a Filipino, well, we're Filipino, I'm half Filipino, but we're watching a Filipino movie, we to be Filipino, there was a character who was like a gay guy, and she was like, oh, he thinks he's a woman, um, you know, she, he's mentally ill, and I was just like, you know, at the time I knew, like, no, he's gay, right? But the thing that really worries me, that I've seen enough evidence of that's really an issue, is that, um... When you apply these treatments to children, it's just not ethical. And um, the thing with protect trans kids for me that is really difficult for me is that it needs to be protect gender non conforming kids from having their puberty or, uh, turned into a medicalized thing. Like, for example, the civil liberty of a child to grow
0: up without having their sex or, Yeah. Or their not, not I don't want to, not, 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 not to be rude I don't want to cut you off but I know what you're getting at and you know I I too um you know I'm only uh, a couple of years older than you and I, I also campaigned for uh, gay marriage in my younger years so to be, to be you know denounced as anti-LGBT now is sort of amusing um you know, I did that prior to my being any kind of journalist or in the media at all. Um, but at I, I, I the same time, I'm not sure how deep into the rabbit hole of trans issues I want to get into right now. I mean, they were only really raised over the course of this discussion as a matter of, like, comparing uh, – a comparison, right, as to, to the priorities of the ACLU. Well, let me um, just ask you, have you ever
5: heard somebody make this argument along these lines, like a gay person? Have you ever
0: heard a gay yeah,
5: person? Yeah, I
0: have. I have. Yeah, okay. 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 Yeah. We'll, 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 let's that, let's, let's okay. save that for another time, and maybe we'll get um, – yeah, you know, well, a world it, we're yeah. now gay to, but, um, to articulate it. So okay. Michael, you're
5: assigned. I'd love to have a debate with you one day where it's just, why is Michael Tracy right about everything? And I'll take the yes and you'll take the no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. You organize that and I'm there. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you, sir. And uh, Nasser, you're a late uh, addition, but uh, always good to hear from you. So uh, go ahead and then you'll be the last caller.
6: Yes, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to say that you know, especially to uh, the guest Adam, because mm-hmm. he's a liberal, and and, and 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 sometimes like a lot of my friends who are like liberal, they ask me, okay, why you are, you know, why you know you're supporting uh, Russia? I mean, they just assume that I support. I say, I, I, I don't support Russia. I think <laughs> well, it's it's a you also know, what you know the Russia actually has done it's a crime i mean it's, it's it's a it's a violation of the international law but it, but the thing is that I say sometimes your ideological opponent can be right you know I have people who are uh, right wing and conservatives, but they're not always wrong they can be sometimes right you know and we i think we sometimes we forget that those things and also like i i i've been telling my friends that okay i mean that i have friends who are liberal, like Adam-type liberal, and they say that, you know, um, I, I've been telling them, okay, why why should, why you guys uh, have a confrontation with, with Russia and Putin? Because Putin is a liberal in a sense, because he believes in markets, he believes in all these things that you believe.
0: He believes in multiculturalism.
6: Yeah, uh, and, 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 and like, like if, if I were a Russian, I wouldn't like... Uh, voted for him, I wouldn't have choosed him, you know? Chosen uh, yep. him. But why you guys, uh, for some reason, you know, don't like him and support him and have a confrontation with him, you know? But, uh, you know, but, I don't know. people like uh, don't see the other side sometimes, you know? They just want to, they're ethnocentric, you know, from their own perspective.
0: Well, and one of the big problems right now, and thanks, Nasser, is that the quote-unquote discourse is so frenzied and so emotionally fraught that to even acknowledge that any aspect of what the Russian government is currently saying in its description of the situation in Ukraine might have a kernel of truth to it and not saying you endorse the wholesale or you endorse the invasion which now I made clear than that of course I don't and I actually condemned it just because I knew that My condemning it would not actually inflate me from charges of loving Russia or loving the invasion. Um, And so that's worth pointing out that uh, you you can condemn all you want, but touching touching on certain issues is automatically going to open you up to these kinds of ridiculous accusations. But um, part of this war, war fervor is that, you know, is the furious uh, denial that you know anything that comes out of Putin's mouth or Lavrov's mouth or any Russian government official's mouth might have some um, semblance of at least rational thought behind it? Like now, you're only allowed to declare that they're you know the embodiment of evil and that the uh, it's like this David and Goliath thing, and of course we're on the side of. David, meaning Ukraine, in this uh, cosmic uh, war between, again, the forces of good and the forces of evil, which, of course, is uh, extremely reductive and oversimplified. But that's, again, one of the sort of like propagandistic um, features of a a period like this that I think needs to be uh, carefully parsed um, and probed uh, lest it kind of allow the unchallenged kind of coalescence of consensus behind a policy like we see um, unfolding now, which is just permanent warfare in service of foisting regime change upon Russia, which is just, again, a, a nutty idea that all of a sudden has become rather mainstream. Um, all right, Nasser, thank you for that, and thank you for everybody who listened. Uh, thank, this is sort of a different uh, type of column where it was like a quasi-debate. I, don't even, I hesitate to even call it a debate, more just a I think a relatively friendly exchange, however productive you thought it was. Um, But, you know, want to do more stuff like this in the future if you uh, enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, like I said, um, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Bye-bye.